Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Can you please take your seats? Uh, good evening. My name is uh, Dr. Olga Sobolev. I'm from the LSE Language Center. And I would like to welcome you to our LSE Festival event, Fog in Channel Continent Cutoff. Uh, when, uh, I must say that uh, when back in June, uh, together with Dr. Angus Ren, who is sitting in the middle here, we were writing a proposal for this event. We were a little bit hesitant about the title because we thought that by February it may be a bit redundant. However, we were proven wrong, and uh, the title is spot on, very appropriate for the uh, current situation, so therefore we are going to have uh, a very interesting discussion. We have uh, the leading experts uh, in the subject here. We have uh, Lord McPherson, uh, who is um, former Permanent Secretary of Treasury, and Professor Kai Spickerman from the LSE Department of Government. They will be in discussion with uh, Dr. Angus Wren, who is uh, also from the Language Center. And the discussion will be followed up by a play by Noel Coward uh, entitled Hands Across the Sea. So the title speaks for itself. And Noel Coward is uh, always a great fun. It will be uh, performed by our own unrepeatable uh, Student Union Drama Society. So I very much hope that you will enjoy the evening, and I leave the floor uh, for our experts. Thank you. Thank you, thank you, Olga. And yes, uh, I'm Angus Wren, and I'll be uh, sort of asking some questions of my elite panel here. And my topic for the elite panel is indeed elites. In a moment, I'll be asking you to say who those people are, but we're leading towards a literary connection. And in fact, I've discovered, having done my research, which means, yes, Google, that uh, both of my speakers do, in fact, have a literary connection. Kai, uh, you produced with Robert Good in this uh, book, uh, The Epistemic Theo uh, Theory, The Epistemic Theocracy, try again, The Epistemic Theory of Democracy, very much about how um, different ways of decision-making in various forms of government uh, discussed there, and a technical book, but also a very present and prescient book about things right now. Uh, but you have a literary connection. Uh, on page 303, you say that anybody who is in uh, feeling sceptical about truth in politics mm -hmm. would do well to read Harold Pinter. Can you explain why you recommended Theory of the Absurd uh, in the context of uh, modern politics. Oh wow, now I have to remember really. <laughs> so, um, I mean, Pinta has, uh, I mean, this uh, um, amazing discussion of uh, truth on the one hand in fiction and truth on the other hand in politics. And uh, he's saying, well, I mean, in, in fiction, of, truth, of course, truth is something that is malleable and it can be changed and maybe it can be constructed and maybe it is a cert from a certain perspective quite subjective. But then he says, but if you ask me about truth in politics, then I have to tell you that we really have to say it exists and we have to get at it, and it's important that we insist that um, 
there are standards in the pursuit of that truth, and we should not be talked into a subjectivism that uh, allows people basically to get away with everything. Yeah, so for, for this book in particular, this was a very uh, useful uh, piece, and uh, yeah, and this is why it's quoted there. So Kellyanne Conway needs to get reading your book, <coughs> and Harold, Harold Pinter, yeah. I think, so that we can do something about it. Maybe first Pinter and then my book, Alternative yeah. facts <laughs> need to be addressed. And Lord McPherson, you also have um, a sort of literary connection, because I have, of course, been reading Back from the Brink, which is Alistair Darling's account of your, well, his, his time at the... Uh, Treasury back in a very important period um, in the 2008 uh, financial crisis, and he writes the book soon after that. And he pays you a literary compliment of sorts because he said, Nick McPherson, in his informal, laconic way, did voice concerns that were very dependent on tax receipts from the financial sector continuing to flow forever. Nick, unstuffy about as unlike someone out of C.P. Snow's Corridors of Power as could be imagined, is intellectually self-confident. He always had an opinion which I valued, but he was intensely relaxed when I didn't follow his advice as came to happen. So we're looking forward to Pretty Patel's later biography that she will be producing. Um, Tell us a little about the the relationship between Permanent Secretary and... um, political minister in Whitehall. What is, what is the well, convention there? Yeah. It's, it's, it's quite an important relationship. Um, but I think, it, I think the permanent secretary has to be, show a degree of detachment. I think it generally goes wrong if the permanent secretary either uh, wants to be the minister's best friend or um, if... Um, when the minister refuses to do uh, what the permanent official says, um, the permanent official gets um, angry and emotional about it. I mean, my view is, um, look, these are the various chancellors I worked for. They were the democratically elected members of the government. Uh, They had the authority which derives from being voted into power by the people, I was just some um, functionary. And, I mean, obviously I liked it if they took my advice. But if they didn't, um, you know, maybe, maybe they were right. And anyway, they would have to live with the consequences. Um, so uh, it's uh, interesting just reading of late and watching the television, seeing um, relationships break down. Sometimes they do. Um, if, if they do, actually... In my view, the permanent secretary really has to go. But equally, if the secretary of state makes a habit of sacking permanent officials, that tells you something about the secretary of state. And generally, ones who behave in that way um, tend to fall by the wayside. Well, thank you for that, those comments on things which are absolutely current right now. I, th- I checked just before I came over from my office, and there hadn't been any further resignations at that point, although somebody said there has been something subsequently, so I can't wait to get back and find out. Uh, but, but we're going to be talking about elites in political um, decision-making here. Could you sort of give us a definition, Kai, of who, who are the people in the elites? Well, the definition is tricky, but uh, maybe a starting point is to think about people who have um, more influence than your average voter. Um, In particular, they have this influence uh, because they are well-connected, so they know who to talk to, and they know um, 
which important people they have to persuade in order to um, exercise their power. So here is maybe a com an incomplete list, uh, but the first attempt at, you know, the sort of elites that uh, one could think of. So clearly, in a certain sense, elected officials are part of the elite um, for arguably good reasons, right? But then there are loads of unelected officials, um, of course, especially the senior civil service, I think is very much um, part of an elite that um, has uh, enormous influence, uh, much more influence than, than your average voter. Judges, um, very clearly, um, are part of this group. Um, some advisors, I think we might be talking about advisors a little bit later on, mm. um, maybe some spin doctors. Um, I think some experts might claim that they're part of uh, an influential elite group, maybe some journalists, maybe even some academics, although, I mean, normally academics are really not very influential at all, I think. Um, and very occasionally, I think, uh, yeah, sometimes CEOs, some leaders of lobby groups, some leaders of special interest groups, um, maybe some leaders of NGOs uh, might also be um, part of an elite group that is, um, yeah, marked by a higher level of influence than um, the average voter would find they have if they try to convince the society to go in one way or the other. So those are the, the sort of people who make up the elite and the different estates, really, the, the, including the press and, and, and the modern uh, new media, too, all part of the, the idea of the elite. Um, and is, is the term elite perhaps slightly misleading? Does it tend to be pejorative, used pejoratively? I mean... Is meritocracy is elite by definition, is it? Or are you thinking of people who are just born into these, effectively born into these groups? So I think that you can really organize um, elites in different ways. So it's actually tricky for me. So I mean, one of my sort of minor roles is that I'm also a representative of the German National Academic Foundation. Um, and uh, that's, that's a group that uh, is uh, trying to uh, support the um, uh, best 2% of German students, and they unashamedly say that they are supporting the German elite. And uh, so what they, what, they, what they mean by that is that these are the you know, um, students who are particularly strong, but also take, take on particular responsibilities. Mm -hmm. So they always have this connection between performance and responsibility. And maybe if you think about this kind of notion of elite in this way, on the one hand it comes with great power, but on the other hand it comes with great responsibility, then maybe it's not necessarily uh, in itself, in yeah, itself yeah. Uh, kind of traveling with a negative connotation. So, but I think most of the time in public debate it really means these are people who have more influence than they should have. Right, yes, yes. And um, in that connection, I thought, um, Nick, could we ask about the role of SPADs? Uh, it's such a wonderful word to express, isn't it? Spads. Uh, special <laughs> advisors. Uh, this is my moment for my non-technical visual aid. Uh, <laughs> look hard, yeah? Dominic Cummings, or is it Lord <coughs> Kitchener? Yes. Uh, not your country needs you, but weirdos and misfits, your army needs you. Uh, that is the telegraph, I think. Um, interesting that they published it. Uh, what about the SPAD? In the time you were at the Treasury, were they there when you started? Are they something that have come in since? And how do you feel about that? Well, yes, they were there at the beginning. I mean, special advisors were, I think, a phenomenon first of the Wilson government in the 1960s. 
and um, at their best, they can be remarkably effective and improve the functioning of government. Um, you know, in my time, there were a number who were definitely experts in their own field, um, and you know, brought brought huge experience in that field to the party. Um, and their other benefit was that um, if you don't have special advisors, um, civil servants get drawn more and more into uh, slightly uncomfortable uh, political um, engagement. And so where you've got a well-functioning special advisor, you know, they write the party conference speech rather than the official. Mm. When I joined the Treasury, actually... To all intents and purposes, an official wrote uh, Nigel Lawson's um, party conference speech. Now, Lawson would have been responsible for the content, but um, I felt officials were too involved in, 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 in some of the politics. And um, I, I worked with some really quite effective um, special advisers. If I look back at Ed Balls, he played a critical role in developing the blueprint for making the Bank of England operationally independent in 1997 on day one of that government because um, I was Gordon Brown's private secretary briefly you know, Bulls turned up with a ready written plan and the eventual plan which the Treasury implemented was actually very similar to the Bulls plan because it was well developed um, intelligent and so on and, um, and equally just in case I appear to be biased, um, George Osborne had some um, some very good advisers who, who brought expertise uh, as well as impeccable manners um, to, 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 to the business of government. Where things start to go wrong, I think, is where special advisers begin to think they are part of the story. I mean, look, we've had um, special advisers throughout history, you know, Thomas Cromwell, classic example, much, much in the news yeah. of late as Hilary Mantel writes, writes her, the final part of her trilogy. And in, in my view, if you want to get on as, a, um, as an advisor, the best thing to do is to have zero media profile. Um, the ideal advisor, no one knows who they are. Um, but in the modern world, Partly, I think, because people watch programs like The Thick of It, they begin to want to behave like Malcolm Tucker. And Malcolm Tucker was partly influenced the world by Alistair Campbell, or people's mm. perception of Alistair Campbell. And, um, and actually, Alistair Campbell, to, to, be due, to be fair to him, resigned when he felt he had become the story. Um, now, I don't know Mr. Cummings, and for all I know, he's a very nice man and highly intelligent. And look, there's nothing wrong with trying to get weirdos. I mean, implicit in that is a view that you need greater diversity of thought. I'm all in favour of that. Mm -hmm. You need diversity of thought. But by the time... Well, first, there was one special advisor, Sajid Javid, who was marched out of Downing Street, and I, don't, I think her crime had been swapping email messages with Philip Hammond, who was a member of the... Um, was an MP in the, in the then main governing party... And for that, she was expelled. And then the other week, um, uh, Mr. Javid was told that he had to have advisers effectively appointed by Cummings. 
I don't think that is a sustainable policy. Um, and as I understand it at the moment, Mr Sunak, who I think is a very well-equipped to be um, Chancellor of the Exchequer, you know, um, classic member of the establishment. I think he's the third Wickhamist Chancellor since the war. For those of you who don't know, Winchester is one of Britain's major public schools. And the previous two ones actually were, were Labour uh, Chancellors in the form of uh, Cripps and Gayskill. But um, anyway, sorry, I digress. The, the point being, the point is that... Um, Sunak special advisers actually work for number 10 now, which means that they're effectively spies. And um, I don't think that is a very effective way of governing myself. So it, is, it is like Hillary Mantel. It is actually, yeah. yes. No, it is. Except straight out of, I mean, nothing's new in this game. Um, and prime ministers have always had spies all over the place, but these people are now officially a spy. And as I understand it, um, Mr. Sunak can't have a meeting with officials without these very talented special advisors appointed by number 10 present. Is there any dynamic akin to that? In, I mean, you're from Germany originally. It's in the German system where coalition is so much more a part of the tradition. Is there anything like that in the German political um, well, approach? So I suspect that what is, what is kind of similar in Germany is this idea that you have your kind of separate fiefdoms, right? So you have your ministry, that's yours. And if... Um, if that is part of a coalition setup, that's arguably even more important because that's really seen as a political price, right? So I don't know what. If you are, I mean, right now we have this sort of grand coalition which is getting smaller and smaller, right? But I mean, there's very clearly the SPD ministry of something and the CDU ministry of something. And by the way, then um, all the people who work permanently, uh, so basically the civil service of Germany, they um, move up and down career ladders depending on whether it's a CDU or an SPD minister in charge. So um, I was working a long time ago in the Ministry of Education, and uh, um, at the time it was, you know, SPD, and so my boss was really very close to the minister, and he was seen as sort of a political civil servant, and then I met him next time, the CDU was in charge of a ministry, and he was doing something much less interesting. Uh, <laughs> so, so yes, I mean, the phenomenon is very much there. I don't think that this level of centralization that we see uh, right now is typical for Germany. I think this would be very difficult to implement, and especially in a coalition government. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. and, 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 and Nick, in, in the course of your career, you spent time in a, well, serving a coalition yeah. government. Was, was that different from serving? Yes, it was. I mean, I, I mean, I think it's fair to say that the senior levels of the British civil service remain uh, unpolitical. So, actually, generally, there is no benefit or cost if you're a civil servant mm. if a different party is in power nevertheless when there was a coalition um, where um, where you had and there were very few of them a liberal minister obviously their special advisors would be liberals and and the loyalty of a civil servant in a department is to their secretary of state um, now you know, being quite sophisticated, Mr. Mr. Messrs. Cameron and Osborne ensured that where there was a Liberal Secretary of State, there was a sort of Tory uh, junior minister who was there to do the spying. But it created quite interesting challenges. We had a Liberal, um, the second minister in the Treasury is called the Chief Secretary, who's responsible for public spending, and that was a Liberal in the form of Danny Alexander. And there were, um, from time to time, there were sort of 
conflicts which my job was to try and resolve them where Danny Alexander felt he wasn't seeing the same advice as George Osborne was. And um, I took the view that actually, you know, they should be seeing the same advice. They certainly shouldn't be getting different advice. And if, and if um, you know, George Osborne was insisting he didn't see the advice, I think I made it clear that it was perfectly legitimate for Danny to ask for some advice, in which case we give it to him, yeah. but it would be the same advice. Yeah. And um, making that work you know, it was a challenge because we hadn't had a coalition in peacetime for um, till going back to the 1930s. So we were having to make it up as we went along. But, I mean, coalitions are good if you're a bureaucrat because um, to get agreement in a coalition, things have to be written down. There have to be meetings. Those meetings have to be recorded. And both parties have to agree the outcome of the meeting. You know, those are good times. Whereas I suspect at the moment we are back in the world of safer government where um, Mr Johnson, who I understand doesn't have a very long attention span, um, has, um, you know, is probably having brief meetings. I saw somewhere in the newspaper and he wants things written down on half a page of paper or something. Um, so I should imagine not a lot is being written down at the moment and that Mr Cummings, I don't want to turn Mr Cummings into some great sort of Svengali figure, because for all I know, he's completely irrelevant. I mean, he obviously got a high opinion of himself, otherwise he wouldn't spend his whole time briefing um, the newspapers about his brilliance. But, but that doesn't necessarily mean he's that influential. Right. Um, yeah. Time will tell. And I think you were talking in, in terms of elites about the importance of linking responsibility to or the, the authority of power of the elite in some way in, in the culture? Do, do, is there, or is that utopian thinking? Yeah, well, I mean, I think it's at least something we should try, right? So, so I'm a political theorist. I mean, most of the time I think about politics in terms of how it ought to be rather than how, how it is, right? So that's maybe an unusual perspective to take, but that's, that's my day job. And uh, in this day job, so I would say, yes, uh, there may be good reasons for having for having elites, and of course sometimes you need them. So reason number one, some people are just more competent for certain decisions because they know more or they have more experience, so they bring something to the table that other people don't have. That's a good reason for them having more influence. The second reason is sometimes we delegate powers to people because it's more convenient or perhaps because it's the only way to run a complex state. So yes, in those cases it's also clearly justifiable that people have have more influence. And the third reason is that sometimes people are just more persuasive. Um, and uh, if that's the case, then it might also be justified that uh, they have more influence. But I think in all of these cases, it's important that we attach this idea of having more influence with the notion that it comes with certain responsibilities, how you should conduct yourself. Um, with power comes responsibility. I think that's a very attractive normative principle. Um, and now one could discuss, I mean, what in detail this would mean, what kind of responsibilities would, could come with that. Thank you. And, um, I mean, you, you don't go that far back, Nick, but uh, if, you, if we go back into the 20th century, we can, we can use sound bites before we had sound bites, phrases like uh, winds of change used at one point in Harold Macmillan using that in 1959, 1960 about the end of colonization in Africa. 
then uh, his phrase, you've never had it so good, addressed to the British electorate, just around the same time. Uh, and then a buzzword that was used in government for many years, I think, was managing decline. Did you come in at the end of managing decline, or did it continue long after as a, a drug? Well, I mean, like it or not, yeah. Britain has been in relative decline since, economically since about 1840. Um, I, know, I know that's not a very attractive picture to paint, but it's the consequence of being the first country mm. to industrialise on a large scale. And we've been dealing with the consequences of that ever since. I think, you know, the, the sort of general... Um, I mean, it's quite interesting why people think what they think and um, is, is relevant to Brexit... I don't think the British people have some deep understanding of history, but there is this vague sense that we did once have an empire and maybe we won the odd war um, and that somehow uh, things aren't how they used to be. So I do think... Um, I mean, I, Margaret Thatcher detest, I mean, detested those civil servants, I think in her view, who, who, who were there, the, the implicit view of Margaret Thatcher, the civil servants, I, mean, I don't think ever, ever actually went out in public and said, we're here to manage decline, to the decline. I think this is a way of, in a sense, attacking these people for being defeatist, that um, somehow that's what they thought they were doing. Um, I mean, I didn't ever... I'm not really very interested in decline. My main interest always was to try and do whatever one could to ensure that the British economy uh, operated more effectively. And did Thatcher Act monetary policy as a guiding principle, did that make the Treasury still more to the fore? Well, one, one of the problems about the Treasury, um, and you know, I'm one of the guilty men, I suppose, in one sense, is it, it's far too quick to adopt a prevailing ideology. So there's huge resistance to Thatcherism for about the first two or three years of the 1979 government, the then Permanent Secretary Douglas Wass was a classic post-war Keynesian. But once he, he in, a, in a sort of rather elegant way in those days, he was, he was made joint head of the civil service, primarily to take him out of yes. providing economic advice. And the next generation of officials um, were, I think, far more enthusiastic about the, the Thatcher agenda um, and if I had a criticism of the Treasury, it, it tends to leap on, um, you know, some new prevailing orthodoxy uh, when it probably should be um, uh, rather more sceptical. Mm -hmm. um, I think the Treasury is at its best when it's at its most sceptical. And I think just as it was wrong about pure Keynesianism, which by the mid-1970s had run its course, so it was wrong about monetarism in the 1980s. And um, in my view, and I'm sure I can be criticised for whatever orthodoxy I hang on to, you, um, you, you, the, the main function of the Treasury is to test the theories of other people, ideally to destruction. And so, I mean, look, in the coming time, we're going to have lots of theories about how, if only we just throw an extra £100 billion at 
infrastructure projects or mm-hmm. or whatever the popular popular area is at the time that's going to make a huge difference it won't and you know the, there's nothing new in particularly in Britain um, people have been writing reports for the last hundred years about the north and how we need to level um, level up um, the solutions to these things are very technical and very boring and require huge focus and extraordinary persistence um, a lot of it revolves around skills and further education in particular. And I don't want to be a made sound defeatist, but I, my guess is this government um, is not going to display that focus. It's not going to display that interest, partly because it doesn't understand further education, because the people in the government now um, you know, are classic members of the elite, despite the fact they've run... you know. In running for office, they, they are running against the liberal metropolitan elite. But yeah. um, you only have to look at um, Jacob Rees-Mogg, Eton and Christchurch, Boris Johnson, Eton and Balliol, Rishi Sunak, Winchester, mm. and I think he did PPE, mm. astonishingly. There are not many LSE um, graduates in this outfit, I don't think. Anyway. A lot of Oxford. Yeah. 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 Can I jump in here quickly? Because this really interests me. There is a, there is a vision of government in, 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 in what you just said, that the Treasury should basically test all the ideas to the limit. And the idea is that government should really be sort of internally adversarial, right? They should, they should really discuss things. But interestingly, I mean, right now we put a lot of emphasis on unity, right? Mm. Everybody says as soon as there's disagreement somewhere, this is a sign of weakness. It's a really place, really bad in the media, and so on and so on. But is it perhaps just misguided to, to expect governments to be sort of, kind of I, always on yeah, the same page? It's a really interesting question. I think, I think you need a, a degree of creative tension between the Chancellor and Prime Minister. I, yeah, I saw a lot of these relationships. If I look at something like John Major and Ken Clark. Uh, Ken realised that John Major, he'd sacked Norman Lamont. He couldn't sack a second chancellor, in mm. Ken's view. And actually, I think that made the basis of a strong relationship, that John Major respected Ken Clark, Ken Clark respected John Major, and they had particular functions. The job of a prime minister is to primarily, apart from leading the country, is to get the government re-elected. And so in doing that, they will always want to spend a bit more money and tax a little less. The job of the Chancellor is to ensure that in pursuing uh, the government's agenda, the Prime Minister doesn't sort of blow it and cause a massive devaluation or, um, you know, uh, a massive deficit which leads to 10 years of consolidation. And where, where I think government, certainly in Britain, becomes very ineffective is where you have a very dominant prime minister who basically seeks to direct um, the chancellor. You saw that with Edward Heath in the early 70s. That ended badly. Um, the early Gordon Brown period as prime minister until Alistair Darling realized that he needed to strike out um, a bit more on his own was, was quite tricky. Um, now, it may be that Sunak is a genius, and I hope he is, in which case, actually, very quickly, he will move from being the guy who's taking dictation from number 10 
to the man who could be the next Prime Minister, at which point Mr Johnson will get a bit scared of him. Oh, yeah. So do they, they do see themselves as heirs apparent, is that? Well, I think there's a tendency. Is it because of living next door? It's something about being in Downing Street. And in, um, in the old days it was being Foreign Secretary, but in the modern world, because of um, the telephone and the internet, yeah. actually Prime Ministers tend to run foreign policy. So... Yeah. I think it's certainly true in Britain. I suspect it's true in Germany too. The finance minister tends to be the second person in the government. But, I mean, the other thing in Britain, because the sort of treasury is effectively a sort of Gladstonian invention, it, 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 it's, it's more powerful than the German finance ministry because in Germany you've got an economics ministry, which is somewhere else, whereas these two roles mm. are effectively combined in the treasury yeah. here. As, uh, when, when we were talking just before, I was, of course describing the paintings, and I said to Nick, you must have had your painting done, and he said, you're joking. Is that right? Uh, the Treasury is the last place to have your official... Painting. You never have paintings, because it would involve spending money. And, and it does go back to Gladstone and his belief that you should save candle ends. Um, we, you know, everybody always thinks that sort of officials and civil servants are profligate, but the Treasury, I think, takes a sort of ascetic pride in, um, in saving money. To, to bring us back to our literary theme, uh, is the Treasury the Scrooge of government? Is it as simple as that? Um, well, someone has to be. <laughs> because, look, I mean, unlike Germany, the British people are addicted to consumption. The politicians they elect are addicted to consumption. This, this is a country which chronically underinvests, it undersaves. Um, Germans would be appalled at what goes on here. And so somebody has to be the institution which at least tries to stop some of this going on. Yes. Well, thank you very much for your uh, views on this. And I, at this point, do we have the, the microphones among the, um, the, the stewards? Do, could, do we have microphones for questions from the, from the floor? Yes, if, if anybody would like to ask a question of either of our guests uh, now. If you speak up very loudly, we can yeah, manage Maybe if you speak very loudly and I'll get up, maybe. Yeah. Uh, yes, uh, in the second row. Yeah. Hi, so I'm American, and there's been a bit of uh, tension kind of since, I would say, 2008 over, over a, a supposed elite influence on American politics, particularly if you look at people like who are running for, who have recently been running for president, kind of trying to downplay even their education or their qualifications for the role, the idea being that in order to be a truly populist person or to appeal to the masses, one should be almost, I, I hesitate to say less qualified, but somehow less educated or less, uh, less wealthy even. And I'm curious kind of, particularly in the wake of Brexit, how that plays a part in British politics, where there's clearly a sort of tension between um, wealth and also education and status and uh, etc. And I'm curious to see what your thoughts on on that are. I mean, um, well, it's it, it's really interesting the growth of populism, and um, I mean, I'm not claiming that populism has got anything in common with. I mean, the current populists have anything in common with the um, exemplars in the, 19, in the late 1920s and 1930s, but they do use some of the same playbook, 
which is you've got to run in opposition to the elite, the educated, the liberals, the experts. And there's quite a well, I think, developed technique, which, and bear in mind that a lot of the people who advise on campaigning um, have worked um, in the United States. They come over here or they've been in Australia. And it's always about sort of otherness. You've got to identify who is to blame. So, you know, in the old days, it was the communists and the trade unions. Well, there really aren't many communists in Britain anymore, and the trade unions are so completely weak. So the immigrants, always a good one, um, whether it's a wall across the, you know, Mexico. And there's a sense that somehow there's this liberal elite who is conspiring to bring immigrants in the country to keep wages down so they can make more money. You know, it's quite... It's, these are quite simplistic messaging. And, and all you've got to do is get enough people to believe this. Um, and let's face it, the, the fundamental problem is the financial crisis, um, which, you know, I'm one of the guilty men who didn't see the financial crisis coming. Um, and it has had horrible consequences. Certainly in Britain, we've had 10 years of wages um, being completely flat um, at a time when the greater job insecurity. So sort of tuning into that insecurity, I think, is very effective. What interests me, though, is, is you know, and Johnson's brilliant at this. Um, he can sort of paint pictures in, an, in a relatively amusing way. Um, while, in a sense, completely being able to deny that he is part of this establishment which caused the problems in the first place. And I think that there is one difference in the United States is, I mean, look, the elite in this country used to be really narrow, but it's still very narrow. Um, I'm astonished. I can remember going to a meeting in the, early in the Cameron government and I think there were about seven of us in the room. And I worked out that five of the people there were old Italians. Now that, that is just quite weird. Um, and um, it, 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 coming back to your theme, Angus, actually, what's, what's interesting about some of these people, even when they're on opposite sides, they're regularly, it's almost as if politics is a game and a joke. And they get together and discuss it and almost sort of laugh about it but you know actually there are 60 million people having to live with the consequences mm -hmm. yeah yeah Kai, did you have thoughts on that or um, yeah, the, the fascinating thing how how easy it is for i mean parts of the establishment to you know turn this into a discourse about you know oh it's this kind of elite that you don't want right yes. but i mean we are fine i mean i mean, I mean at least in the i mean i mean the, the situation this country is in here right now is quite remarkable because it's very much the old establishment that is in power in, in many ways the us i mean there are things are a little bit tricky although of course trump is not exactly um a, completely plausible anti-establishment candidate uh, for, <laughs> for, various, for various important reasons either. So, um, um, so yes, I wonder how long this populist bubble 
uh, will last or whether it will be replaced by, by something else. Well, on, on that note, um, I'm getting signals that we need to move into uh, drama point. So uh, I, if my guests are able to stay afterwards, perhaps if people would like to ask individually questions immediately after the, the one-act play, which is about to come. Now it's our turn to leave the stage. So thank you to my two guests, uh, Lord McPherson and Professor Kai Speakerman. For the
Yes. No, her ladyship's not back yet. Well, she said she'd be in at five, so she ought to be here any minute now. What name, please? <coughs> Rawlingson. Mr. and Mrs. Rawlingson. Yes, I'll tell her. Well, there's no room 
wouldn't starve it, and even if there was, they'd be utterly wretched. I don't see why. Well, they probably wouldn't have the right clothes. They wouldn't know anybody. They'd keep on puddling about in uneasy little groups. The amount of uneasy little groups that three people can love about. <laughs> <laughs> Hello, chaps. Oh, Allie, darling. We're in trouble. Peter will tell you all about it. What trouble? Um, Kitty's beach friends. Sit down. Why not? 
No, you sit over there, and I'll sit here. Yes, dear. <laughs>
he pinches it behind and it quacks land of hope and glory. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know whether it hurts or not. Well, that's scary now anyway. It's, it's not like it's performing dogs. I mind about performing dogs terribly. <laughs> All right. Goodbye.
out too much. I adored Wally. He was a darling. He kept on having fights all of the time. I hate people hitting people. Jenny? Yes, yes. Oh, yes, and it's been absolutely frightful. 
But my husband will be getting leave soon, so we shall try to pop off somewhere. Uh, I suppose you've never run across a chap in Burma called Beckwith? No, I've never been to Burma. He's in rubber, I believe. Or tea. Anyhow, he's very amusing. Nice. <laughs> well, you should come and lunch with us one day. I expect you're terribly busy. Oh, my dear, I worship it. <laughs>
Oh, they want my mother and father. <laughs> and from three months, I've got the plans for the commander speedboat. Mr. Driscoll couldn't come. Oh. Well, you better wait about. He'll be back soon. I can't wait long. I have to get back to the shop. Well, you're kind of piped up. To travel with Molly, she's too insular. Are you driving down on Sunday? Oh, no, I've got to stop off at Rotherham and have a look at Frida. Do you want to come? I know perfectly well. I hate Frida's guts. Oh, all right. I'll expect you in the afternoon. Hello? Oh, David, darling. Oh, no, I'm so sorry. I completely forgot. I can see some people on my favorite meats. Oh, David, don't be so sour. Dream. 